Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael Da Silva, and I am your host for episode 28. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Stephen Vance as he continues his series with us in the Psalms. This time, he will be considering Psalm 88 and 89, which are Psalms of Lament. These are usually read or sung during very difficult times. How do I get through these times as a child of God, you might ask? Stephen will discuss this in his message entitled, Honoring God During Great Distress. Today we're going to look at Psalm 88 and 89, and this is a a totally different shift in, in gears. Uh, We've been looking through the Psalms, and we saw that the Psalms started as as teaching wisdom, uh, the way of the righteous, how to be wise. We also saw that there are Psalms that are royal Psalms that emphasize the King, and of course, for us as Christians, show us the glory of our Savior Jesus as the King, and Psalm 2 is an example of that. And many of the Psalms are quite happy, and we're going to study more of those as well. But today we're going to focus on one of the sad psalms, one of the psalms of lament. And uh, these psalms are not typically sung in church. Uh, In church, we, and Christian life, we frequently just sing the happy songs. But what I love about the psalms is how uh, authentic and true uh, to humanity uh, they really are that even in our darkest moments, we can, we can come to the Lord with even that stuff. So if you want to think about one of your darkest moments as you uh, read this prayer, this psalm together with me, it's Psalm 88. And it says a song, a song of the sons of Korah for the director of music, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskal of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit, and I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me, and you have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Selah. You have taken me from my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you, Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Selah. Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. 
Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. There are many of these kinds of laments throughout the Psalms. In fact, there's pretty much one for every occasion. For example, in Psalm 3, Psalm 3 is one of a number where the psalmist has an enemy. In Psalm 3, uh, David is fleeing from Absalom and he's, he's lamenting how many are his foes. Psalm 6 is a, is, a, is a lament about sickness. The psalmist says, I'm languishing, my bones are troubled. Psalm 31 is a, a lament. Uh, the psalmist is experiencing slander. I hear the whispering of many. In Psalm 52, the, the psalmist is noticing poverty and exploitation and oppression. And he laments about the evil of his day. There's also laments like Psalm 74 for military defeats. They set your sanctuary on fire. And for sieges, the enemies are making an uproar. There's pretty much a lament for every occasion in the Psalms. The typical structure of a, of a psalm of lament is that there's a complaint the psalmist brings, and then there's a petition, a prayer that's made to God, and then there are usually positive expressions of trust and praise, perhaps because most laments were written after the problem was resolved and the psalmist was able to bring that. But what you need to see is that these complaints are not just musings to one another. They are complaints that are brought in faith as a prayer to God. The first lament in the Psalms is in Psalm 3, where I've already referenced, and the, the structure is really clear. There's a complaint in verses 1 and 2, where David says, How many are my foes? Many are saying, God will not deliver him. And it moves in verse 7 to a, a, a petition to God, and he says, Arise, Lord, deliver me. O my God, strike all my enemies on the jaw. And then there is an expression of trust and praise. Verse 3 to 6, you are a shield around me, O Lord. And then verse 8 as well, from the Lord comes deliverance. So this is the general structure of Psalms of Lament. But Psalm 88 that we have read is, is very different because there is no expression of praise. It's all dark. It's all complaint. And the first point that I want to make as we go through the markers of what this psalmist's difficulty was, is I want you to remember that you honor God when you bring your lament or your complaint to him. Psalm 88 starts with these words. They do seem positive. O Lord, the God who saves me day and night, I cry out before you. And it could be that this is a positive declaration of a of a saving God, but the rest of the psalm dwarfs this positive note by the, the, the depth of the complaint, so that some commentators actually read this as sort of an irony, almost a sarcasm, that the psalmist is saying, O oh Lord, the God who saves me? Look at how difficult, look at how difficult this is. And so I want you as you go through these verses to think about whatever trouble you're going through, and it's hard times right now, what makes hard times hard? And really, it's going to show us what kind of complaints can be brought to God. 
This passage in verses 3 to 5 shows us that it, it feels like curtains for the, for the psalmist. Verse 3 says, I'm full of trouble. I'm near Sheol, near the grave. Verse 4, I'm going down to the pit. Verse 5, it feels like I'm set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. And so the psalmist says it feels like it's the end. St. John of the Cross coined the phrase, the dark night of the soul. And that poem, in an obscure night, fevered with love's anxiety, O hapless, happy plight, I went, none seeking me, forth from my house, where all things quiet be. And many believers have that, these dark nights of the soul on the way to finding the joy that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. David wrote about it in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He wasn't dying, but it sure felt like it. It was the valley of the shadow of death. But the second part of what makes hard times hard is not just that it feels like curtains, but that it feels like God has done it. And in verses 5 to 9, as well as verse 16, God is introduced and the psalmist is saying, you're doing this to me. You're doing this to me. You have put me, verse 5, in the lowest pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You have overwhelmed me. And down in verse 16 later, your wrath has swept over me. And it feels like God has done it. I know that in the current time of pandemic, there's all sorts of prophets who will lay the blame for the pandemic at the feet of ungodly people. And on one level, we can understand since, you know, disasters in Egypt were judgments. And, and sometimes scripture speaks about that. But God's people have the comfort of Psalm 91 and 3. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. But be careful. There's a risk to taking this all-knowing stance and attributing disaster to sin, whether personally or corporately. Remember that while Egypt's disasters were judgments, Job's were refining. Psalm 91 and 3, he will deliver you, would have given little comfort to Naomi in a time of famine. Sometimes God's people go through difficulties as well for no fault of their own. But what this perspective gets right is the emotion. Even if God is not the cause of my difficulty, sometimes it feels that way. And that's what the, the psalmist is communicating. It says it feels like God has abandoned me and caused this problem. And so the psalmist says, verse 7, you have overwhelmed me. Selah. Think about it. Not only... Is there this sense it feels like curtains, it's all over, and it feels like God has done it, but it feels like others are far away. Verse 8, the psalmist says, you've taken from me my closest friends. And then not just the view of others as being distant, but the view of self as being damaged. The psalmist says, you've made me repulsive to them. I'm confined, cannot escape, and my eyes are dim with grief. 
And so this is what it is in a time of hardship. It feels like the end. It feels like God is doing this. It feels like others are far away and untrustworthy. And it feels like I am damaged. And if you're in a spot where you resonate with any of those thoughts, don't let anybody delegitimize those feelings. Just bring all of that all of that sadness and that darkness and that lament and that complaint to God. Let that be your prayer. God, this is how I'm feeling. And it becomes an act of faith. But now we're at a point in the psalm where the complaint section turns into a question section. And the questions start in verse 10. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you. And of course, the psalmist's answer is no. No, it feels hopeless. The dead never come back and praise the Lord. Everything is no and hopeless. Of course, as Christians, we see answers to this question in Christ, and his resurrection is a, a huge yes in response to these questions. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Yes, through the risen Jesus you do. Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Yes, through the risen Christ we have hope even in death. And indeed, even the Old Testament. The psalmist in 139 presents the other side of this darkness, declaring, If I make Sheol my bed, behold, Lord, you are there. But in the context of this psalm, it's not meant to be read positively. It's just a further expression of the hopelessness of the psalmist. And so in verses 1 to 8, we have the complaint. And now we have these dark questions in verses 9 to 12. But in verse 12 and 13, now we have the prayer that becomes an accusation. And the psalmist says, verse 13, I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. And that word for my prayer comes before you is the same word as in Psalm 17 and 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. This word in Psalm 88, 13 is no polite Sunday school prayer. The psalmist is upset and angry. I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer confronts you. Because the psalmist is feeling all this darkness, feeling like it's curtains, and that God has done it, that others are far away, and I am damaged. And the psalmist says there's no hope. Every question I ask, the answer is no. So I'm bringing this prayer to you. I'm upset. So I don't know where you're at. But maybe there's some believers and, and you just need this spot to be able to bring your sadness and your anger and your upset to God. Let me quote two theologians. Peter Slosser is a pastor and he said it this way. You may have been told that big boys don't cry. You may have felt the need to apologize for shedding tears in church. But Psalm 88 invites us to lament and encourages us to express our pain when your soul is full of trouble. In other words, you can cry if you want to. 
Beth Tanner, another theologian in commenting on this psalm, says, For me, this prayer provides legitimacy to all the prayers of praise where the world looks perfect. It speaks to times when there's no reason, theological or otherwise, that can explain the images of violence burned into my brain. So remember from this psalm, you honor God when you bring your lament or complaint to him. But I want to point out something else. We've seen the main lesson in this psalm is that sometimes all that's available and all that's needed in deep darkness is a listening ear to express our pain. The psalmist expresses his pain, he vents, and God takes this prayer and puts it into the Psalter. Some, however, still want to resolve the problem, and they see Psalm 89 as the answer. And so we do need to look at this. And certainly, Psalm 89 begins with, verse 1, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known to all generations. And so there is God's steadfast love. And it's true that God's steadfast love can often bring us comfort. But as you go through the psalm, we'll see that that God's steadfast love in, in Psalm 89 doesn't bring the psalmist comfort. Because down in verse 38, there's a real shift. And the psalmist, after describing God's love, says, but you have rejected, you have spurned, you've been very angry with your anointed one, and you've renounced the covenant with your servant. And so the logic of Psalm 89 seems to make it clear that God's steadfast love in the past seems to have fallen on hard times in the present. And the psalmist cannot see resolution so that God's past blessing actually increases present distress. So we're not going to read this psalm, but I do want to point out a few things if you choose to read it on your own. In verses 1 to 5, the first anchor from the past that is clear is that God's steadfast love is our anchor. It's a beautiful word, the Hebrew word chesed. Hard to translate into English, but it's steadfast love. It's a covenant word. We find it back in Exodus 34 when God is making or remaking his covenant with Israel. Israel had the law and then broke it by making the golden calf. But God comes back and remakes the covenant with Israel and, and makes this proclamation of his nature saying in Exodus 34, 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness. And this becomes the heartthrob of the Old Testament, one of the most oft-quoted scriptures. Whenever, whenever Israel was in a pinch, she always went back to this scripture. God, you're the God in our lowest moment at the beginning of our history. You showed forgiveness and steadfast love and faithfulness. God's steadfast love is our anchor. And as the psalmist traces this through, what does God's steadfast love bring? Well, verse 3, I've sworn to David my servant. So it, it brought David to the throne. And verse 4 says, I'll establish your line forever and make your throne firm throughout all generations. So that Israel had a king and a kingdom and a hope. And all through this chapter, the psalmist is tracing this hope of Israel's king and Israel's 
kingdom. Verse 24 speaks and says, my faithful love will be with him. The intervening verses have described God's power to crush Israel's foes because his love is with David. Then verse 28, it says it again, I will maintain my love to him forever. After the intervening verses speak of David being honored, his love, God's love for David continues. And then verse 33, it's emphasized again. I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. And so, brother, sister, remember this. God's steadfast love seen to Israel right from the golden calf incident all the way through Israel's history and David, David's kingdom and the kingdom never being taken away. This is an anchor that we can rest upon. God's steadfast love. But not just his love that is primary, there is also God's incomparably awesome power. And we see this in the Psalm 89, starting in verse 6. The psalmist says, who is like the Lord? Verse 8, who is as mighty as you are? And the psalmist traces the Lord's control over the waters. Verse 9, he rules over the surging sea. And you think of the waters that God controls in creation, and then the flood, and then the Red Sea, and then the Jordan. But not just control over the waters. Verse 10, you crushed Rahab. It's not 100% clear, but it seems Rahab was a mythological figure from the ancient Near East. And so the idea here is that God doesn't just control creation and his people. He controls the entire world. The entire world. Verses 11 and 12, the great mountains are under his control. And so the second thing that brings great comfort is not just God's steadfast love to his people, Israel and David and the throne but his incomparably great power over the waters, over the mythological world, over the mountains. This is our God. And so if we learned in Psalm 88 that we honor God by bringing our lament, our complaint to him, in Psalm 89, we discover the response is God's steadfast love and we can have hope when we remember God's covenant and his control. But for the psalmist, this reflection on the Lord's steadfast love, as I've pointed out, only makes it worse. And starting in verse 38 of Psalm 89, the psalmist makes it clear that we've been rejected. Maybe, maybe this psalm was, was composed or at least applied in some way after Israel's kingdom was taken away and they're exiled and they're saying, it's all been breached, it's all been lost. And where does this leave us? Well, what I'd like you to see is what the psalmist says here in verse 46. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like a fire? Back in Psalm 88, the psalmist had asked in verse 14, Why, O Lord, do you reject me? But now the psalmist is asking, How long? How long? And this is where I want to end this podcast. We are allowed to ask why in a difficult time. like the psalmist did in Psalm 88, Jesus did on the cross. 
my God, my God, why did you forsake me? And 30 times in the Psalms, the, the question why is asked. 13 of the Psalms have this type of question. And this Psalm 88 is the second last one. They're about to end in the Psalms. One of the biggest uh, Psalms for asking why is Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Verse 5. Why have you forgotten me? Verse 9. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And sometimes we do ask why. We're looking for a reason in the past. What caused this? Why? And we're allowed. We're allowed to ask why. But what I want to point out is that the answer is not why, but how long. And the why of Psalm 88 gets transformed in Psalm 89 to a how long. And this also is a very common refrain in the Psalms. Also in 13 Psalms, 20 times. And it's all through the Psalms long after 88, these dark Psalms of 88 and 89. The psalmist over and over again is asking, how long? How long? How long? The difference, of course, is that the question how long looks ahead to the day of redemption when these problems will be solved and will God will step in. This is the psalmist's hope. One of the last how longs of the scriptures comes in Revelation chapter 6. And there are martyrs under the altar of God. Of course, they've been persecuted. They've experienced the darkness of Psalm 88 and 89. And they're bringing this prayer to God. They're under the altar. The prayer is coming up to the Lord and they're saying, Revelation 6.10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer comes, verse 11, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. And these martyrs waiting for vengeance are told, how long? Just a little longer. And then I will bring you and your brothers to the eternal home. You see, the Psalms of Lament tell us that we can honor God when we bring our lament, our complaint to him. That's Psalm 88. Psalm 89 and God's steadfast love reminds us that we may have hope when we remember God's loving covenant and his control. But if that makes us feel worse, let us try this third thing and let us develop hope by changing our whys into how longs. One day, the day is going to break. Our Lord is going to return. Hope is on the horizon. I think of the words of Matt and Beth Redmond in their, in their memorable song, You Never Let Go. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back. I know you are near. And I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. And if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear? Oh no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, you never let go in every high 
and every low, oh no, you never let go, Lord. You never let go of me. And I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on, a glorious light beyond all compare. And there will be an end to these troubles. But until that day comes, we'll live to know you here on the earth. How long, Lord? How long? Yes, I can see the light. Oh, no. You never let go. Through the calm and through the storm, in every high, in every low, Lord, you never let go. So whatever you're going through right now, don't try to do it on your own. Bring your complaint. Bring your bitterness. Bring your sadness. And bring it as an act of faith to the Lord. Just like Heman did in Psalm 88. A dark psalm of lament with no light. Remember God's steadfast love, his covenant, his control. And if that doesn't help, Bring your complaint again to the Lord, just like Ethan did in Psalm 89. And maybe you'll find it helpful to let yourself ask why, like Heman did in Psalm 88. But allow yourself as well to transform the why into a how long. Still a prayer of faith. Still hard, but still looking ahead. And think of this. In the day of our Lord's presence and his return, his exaltation and his eternal glory, we won't be asking why. We won't even be asking how long. We'll have him, and that will be enough.